I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Mark Hall, a professor of healthcare law and policy and medical and bioethics at the Wake Forest University Schools of Law and Medicine. Professor Hall has written a perspective article about the implications of the Supreme Court oral arguments in the challenge to the Affordable Care Act. Professor Hall, as you say in your article, this is the case of the century for health policy, and the oral arguments were the subject of a great deal of speculation and attention. For you, were there any surprises in the directions they took? Well, I think the most notable thing is that the justices as a whole don't regard this as an easy case. It's likely to take a considerable amount of their effort in terms of discussing the issues, the various aspects of the case, and uh, drafting their opinions. It's likely that uh, we'll see uh, many different opinions written uh, from the different components of the court addressing the different issues. The fact that the court devoted six hours of argument, which is six times the normal amount, is quite notable uh, in terms of the significance of the case. That much time has not been devoted to a case uh, relative to the normal amount of time since Brown versus Board of Education. So, it's no surprise that the case has gotten this attention. It's just it emphasizes the the, the case's importance, um, how much attention has gotten. Um, I think what was surprising was during the arguments the extent to which a number of justices indicated their willingness to uh, issue, uh, at least to consider issuing bold rulings that might strike the entire act rather than simply severing portions that were unconstitutional and the extent to which uh, several justices indicated a willingness to consider striking the Medicaid expansion piece in particular. Uh, I don't think um, many people anticipated that much a willingness to consider such um, dramatic rulings. Starting with the individual mandate, on what basis do you think the justices will decide whether it is constitutional? That decision will be driven more by constitutional principles than it will by uh, health policy principles. Um, as a health policy scholar and, of course, uh, the readership of this journal, uh, the, our main thinking is about how the main mandate would function in uh, the scheme of insurance regulation and the broader scheme of health policy that underlies the Affordable Care Act. Um, but the justices will be thinking about what uh, the mandate means for a broader set of issues relating to federal powers versus state powers under the Constitution. Uh, this is a theme that's known as federalism in constitutional jurisprudence. And so the main issue, I think, for those who are skeptical of the law is not whether it's a good idea or a bad idea for health policy, but whether uh, limits need to be set on federal powers and whether this is an appropriate occasion uh, to set such a limit. You write that there are other large issues at stake including the question of what it means to ensure liberty. What position do you think the majority of the court will take on that question? Well, ideas of liberty will be more implicit in their thinking, but I think we see notions of liberty emerging in terms of how the justices discuss the basic social compact uh, in which we uh, agree to take care of people in need regardless of their ability to pay and how that functions uh, in painting the picture of what the Affordable Care Act is, is trying to accomplish. We also see differences uh, among the justices with regard to the nature of insurance and pooling insurance risk um, and how that affects 
their views about um, uh, the impact of uh, the law on, uh, as Justice Kennedy said, the relationship of the individual to the government. So, so one view is to consider people in a more atomistic way at a point in time when they either are sick or not sick, or young or uh, old, or um, uh, wealthy or poor, and to, at that point in time, consider what the subsidies and cross-subsidies are that are inherent in uh, an insurance scheme or a social uh, safety net scheme. Uh, the other approach is to look at people more from uh, what philosophers call a behind a veil of ignorance, not knowing what condition uh, we, we will be in from any day to any other day or uh, different points in our, in our life. And so depending on this framing of the point of view, I think we get different notions about whether requiring someone to purchase insurance is uh, enabling them to maintain their insurable status or is it coercing them to subsidize other people um, who are going to use more insurance than they uh, are going to use more health care than they are. Do you see five votes to uphold the ACA? Yes, it's certainly possible. It's uh, pretty clear that uh, the four justices appointed by Democratic presidents uh, are in favor of the law, and so the question is, is there a fifth vote to join them? Uh, Justice Kennedy, in particular, indicated uh, some understanding and appreciation for the government's position that would regard health care and health insurance as distinctive from other uh, commercial endeavors, and therefore some openness to the argument that uh, a limiting principle could be constructed around the special characteristics of uh, the health insurance market and the healthcare enterprise. So it, it, it appears to me and other observers that Justice Kennedy uh, is likely to be the swing vote, the key the decision maker in the case. Um, and uh, so all eyes and ears are on Justice Kennedy and what he had to say and how he thinks about these issues. Of course, the court may sever part of the law and leave the remainder intact. Would this, in your view, constitute legislative action that really should be left to Congress? I think that uh, from the justice's perspective, there's no happy solution to uh, the consequence of striking down the mandate. In anything that they do will feel uncomfortable to them. Uh, striking down the entire law is obviously a very bold and dramatic move that would be perceived as a a politically activist court, uh, leaving in place a law that had everything else but not the individual mandate would cause some degree of market disruption that Congress never intended. Uh, but going in and splicing together a different version of the law feels uh, like uh, a legislative endeavor that the court, uh, many justices, clearly reluctant to undertake this sort of cut-and-paste approach uh, as well. So it, it leaves me feeling like um, there is no easy way out of this box if uh, the court decides to strike down the mandate. Another aspect of the law they looked at was the Medicaid expansion. Do you think that the court could overthrow that provision of the ACA? Yes, it's really, uh, to me, quite surprising that uh, that looks like uh, a distinct possibility um, I don't think uh, that there's a strong indication that it's probable or more likely than not, but there's certainly five justices uh, who appear to be considering that as a, as a possibility. 
I think, again, out of a desire to set some limits uh, on federal power, um, this time not on the, under the Commerce Clause, but under Congress's uh, spending power. And, and so the argument, as you know, is that by conditioning um, existing Medicaid funding on the state's agreement to expand their Medicaid programs to cover 138% of the uninsured, it, it almost doesn't matter how much of that the federal government uh, agrees to pay for uh, in terms of the expansion. Any expansion um, is uh, co conditioned on, on, on the states um, maintaining uh, all of their existing funding, and so states complain that this is uh, coercive. So the justices um, um, gave that issue uh, a considerable amount of attention. In fact, they extended the length of the argument uh, almost an extra half an hour uh, in order to go uh, more deeply into that issue than um, than had even been scheduled uh, on the calendar. And um, I think we're left with the sense of not knowing uh, for sure which way uh, that might come out. One important thing to realize, though, is if the court does find that this Medicaid expansion is unconstitutionally coercive, uh, Justice Ginsburg clarified at the end of the argument uh, that the only only result would be that, or the likely result would be, I, I should say, that states would have the option of uh, of uh, declining the Medicaid expansion, that, that the Medicaid expansion wouldn't be stricken altogether, uh, much less the entire uh, Affordable Care Act, but uh, states would simply be given uh, the choice to uh, take or not take the expansion piece of it. So you, you've mentioned earlier the distinction between justices appointed by Democratic presidents and justices appointed by Republican presidents. And at the end of your article, you raise the question of whether their political views will inevitably influence their decisions in this case. Where do you come down on that question? Well, I think we already see that occurring. And so in how they frame the issues and, and the kinds of questions they asked. And so it's un, un, undoubtedly the case that um, their political and social views will influence how their opinions are written. Uh, the question is whether that's inappropriate or whether it indicates we have a, uh, a more of a legislative body than, than, than a judicial body. And that is not necessarily the correct decision uh, or conclusion to draw. The questions being presented are ones of sort of very general constitutional structure. Uh, should the federal government have explicit limits? Are those limits one that uh, the court should establish or that voters should establish? Um, is, uh, is the mandate something that affects only the market for insurance or the market for health care uh, services more broadly? These are sort of broad uh, conceptual framing questions that uh, reasonable minds can differ on, and it, 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 it's not surprising that one's basic political and social outlook affects how those questions are framed. So I think that the question of illegitimacy comes to play if justices end up being inconsistent, if they take one view of states' rights or individual rights uh, in one case and a different view uh, in another case based on sort of the subject matter uh, of the regulation or the political climate at the time. But if they adhere consistently to a particular worldview and, and, and apply it to these general questions, then I think that's what we expect uh, justices to do. So I would look more at issues of, of consistency across cases than how uh, the court is uh, divided in a particular case. 
Outline for us the process the court follows after oral arguments. After the three days of argument, um, they took a well-deserved break on Thursday, and then Friday they convened to discuss uh, the cases in in private. Um, And at that point, uh, they presumably decide uh, which way they're leaning, which way they're likely to decide, and they sign uh, the responsibilities to write the majority or dissenting uh, opinions. The senior justice uh, on each side of this vote uh, is uh, is the one who assigns uh, the decision-writing responsibilities, um, and then they go about the business of writing their decisions um, and circulating them amongst themselves and uh, oftentimes uh, making significant changes to accommodate views of, of, of different members of the court. Um, at, some process, at, at, at some point during this process, they... they finish their, their, their opinion writing and, and, and the uh, decisions released, uh, considering um, the complexity of the case and the number of dimensions to it, it's not expected that the opinion will be released uh, uh, before the end of the court's term, and the court uh, typically wraps up business right around the end of June. So we, uh, we will await with bated breath for the next uh, uh, almost three months to see what the uh, what the final resolution is. Thank you, Professor Hall.